Okay. Uh, we are uh, in a kind of year-long series this year called Until He Comes. And the purpose of that is really to look at what life looks like between uh, the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. In other words, what is, what is life meant to look like until he comes? That's the time that we live in, the last days, as the New Testament refers to it a number of times. What does it look like? What does it mean to live in the time, in this now and not yet tension of the world in which we're placed? We don't have any other option. This is the era, the time in which we're living, and therefore we are living in a period of time where we have some things to be and do and experience and live out. And that's the question that we're going to be answering as we kind of dip in and out of different mini-series as the year goes on. What does life look like until he comes? We just finished up a series walking through two Peter. So if you're dropping in today, uh, you can kind of go back into that if you want. That was kind of a setting the scene series where we read through a Bible book over kind of six weeks or so. So you can dip back into that. This week, uh, we are digging into uh, a new series and we're kind of going to spend four or five weeks or so in the Lent season. It's Lent right now. Um, and so we're going to dig into a Lent series, uh, and then we'll obviously move into Easter, and we've got Easter themes, and then a little bit after that, we're going we're gonna to be running a series on emotionally healthy spirituality. So that's kind of the roadmap for the, the, the kind of where we're going ahead, just so you know. Uh, so it's going to be four or five weeks in Lent, and to do that today, we're going we're gonna to read the passage that's traditionally read at the start of the Lent season, okay? And it's Matthew 4, uh, verses 1 to 11. If you've got Bibles on you there, Bible on your phone, why don't you pull that out, because we're going to be reading... Uh, and in this passage, really, for today, the words will appear behind me. You can read along with me. So that's Matthew 4, verses 1 to 11. And let's read God's word together. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. And we thank God for his word as it still speaks to us today. I'm just going to pray just as we start today. Jesus, we come to you today. We come to you in the middle of busy lives and hectic schedules and workloads, family life, stresses, strain, illnesses, ailments, pains, challenges, joys, celebrations, much to be thankful for. Jesus, we come in the middle of it all and we come at the start of this Lent season and we say, Jesus, draw near to us now. By your spirit, Jesus, draw near to us. We just ask you, come, Holy Spirit. Do not pass us by. Do not let us miss you. Come to us now. 
For it's in your name we pray. Amen. I wonder if you have ever thought about cheating before. I'm not, I'm not like speaking to relationships here. I'm like, you know, I'm not encouraging that. That's not my like starting point. It's not that sort of talk, right? I wonder uh, if you've ever thought about cheating before in your life, right? Some of you are big board gamers, right? I'm not, because I'm not sad. Um, big into, yeah, Ross is shaking his head. Look at that sad person. Anyway. <laughs> Uh, board gamers, have you ever thought about cheating before, right? Whenever I was growing up, you know, you got kind of games in the Nintendo and there were always like codes that meant you could cheat and get more stuff. So everyone was like entering codes, right? Cheating, right? Joe and I were watching Jumanji uh, over the last week or two, like not the new one, the OG one, right? Like the real Jumanji, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Some people are like, you know, loving it. Other people who were, you know, born after like the year 2000 are like, what even is that, right? Anyway, Jumanji, right? And we're, we're, don't stop pouring scoring on us. It's been a tough couple of weeks, right? Anyway, I love that part in the film, right? Where Peter starts turning into a monkey, right? You remember that bit? And uh, he's like, I don't know what happened. And the girl, what's she called? Sarah, is that her name? Sarah, did I get it? Amazing. Sarah says, uh, well, did you try to cheat? And he's like, no, no, I just tried to drop the dice on 12 because I was only 10 spaces away. And she turns around and she says, honey, that would be cheating, right? Cheating, right? And there's this point in people's lives where particularly when you're growing up as a child with a temptation to shortcut is just too good, right? And you take it. When I was growing up, I'm not going to get into the whole story now, but when I was growing up, I was trying to save up for a Game Boy because that was like a thing back in the day, right? That was like the peak of cool things you could have was a Game Boy. I really wanted my Game Boy. So I was saving furiously. And one day, as I was walking through our house, I saw that my mom had been, had been collecting with the church for the leprosy mission. And that large collection box full of money was there. And I stole from the leprosy mission, right? I literally took money from people with leprosy. Like, it doesn't get much lower than that. Whatever you used to think of me, you're now like, expectations are way down, right? Because like lepers, that's kind of as bad as it gets, right? And I stole from them for a Game Boy. Anyway, shortcuts, right? When you're young, you think, oh, yeah, amazing. I'm just going to take the shortcut. But then surely, right, the older you get, the older you get, you grow up and you think, well, you never, you never even dream about cheating anymore. You wouldn't take shortcuts anymore, would you? Especially not with things as sacred as the 26.2 mile achievement of running a marathon. I mean, you'd never ever think about cheating in that, would you? Well, tell that to Frank Meza, okay? Because in March 2019, Frank, who is 70, finished the Los Angeles Marathon in two hours, 53 minutes, right? Unofficially, the fastest ever time for a man of his age. It was an incredible achievement. He crossed the line. People were absolutely floored at the fact that he'd run it in such a fast time until the investigation came later, which was based on video evidence and eyewitnesses, which recounted that he left the court and then re-entered at a different point. The result is that he posted a mid-race 5K split time that would have set the world record at that distance, right? He said, I merely left the course in search of a restroom and I ran the race on the sidewalk before finding one. Frank, that would be cheating, right? He cheated in a marathon. He got found out. The thing is, it's not just Americans, right? If you're thinking, oh, well, Americans, right? They're always trying to do stuff like that. Nobody as honorable as an English person would ever cheat, right? Well, in the 2011 Kielder Marathon in England, Rob Sloan finished in third place, okay? This was the day after he won a local 10K race. He then finished in third the next day in the Kielder Marathon. But this is how The Guardian reported on the fallout afterwards. Sloan didn't attend the medal ceremony, funnily enough. In the hours after the race, 
troubling details about his performance began to emerge. No other runners could recall him passing them on the trail. Photographs suggested he was missing from the race with a few miles to go. Then there was the most damning evidence of all. Witnesses clearly recalled seeing Sloan during the last few miles of the race. However, just not on the course. They saw Sloan on a bus. He busted it to the end of the marathon and got third place, right? He cheated. He cheated. Rob, that would be cheating, right? Shortcuts. And the problem is, though, right, there are some things in life for which there are no shortcuts, aren't there? I mean, you can try, but there's things in life for which there's no shortcuts. Like, I don't know any of you have ever learned how to play guitar, right? There's no shortcuts around the sore finger stage. You, like, there's no way around that. At some point, you have to build up callus. You have to build up muscle memory to be able to play it the way you want to play afterwards. There's no shortcuts to training for a marathon. You can't go from zero miles to 26.2. You won't finish. You have to build up. You have to train. There's no shortcuts through life events like grief and loss. You can run from it for a little while, but you've got to deal with it. There's no shortcuts to love if you want the real thing. There's some things in life that there are no shortcuts. You can't cheat and make your way around And I say that today because the whole crux of the passage we read, the traditionally read passage at the start of the Lent season, is that the temptation is on Jesus' life to shortcut. The passage we just read, the temptation on his life is to shortcut, right? Sure, there are kind of three individual temptations in in that passage, but the, the heart of those temptations is shortcut. That's what the devil's trying to get him to do, to take the shortcut, You see, we're pretty close to the start of Jesus' ministry journey. He's emerged from the desert, okay? That's significant. The desert um, always played a significant part in God's people, right? Moses, David, Elijah, and now Jesus, they all spent time in the desert, and all of them met God there. He emerges from the desert, and John the Baptist, who's been pointing the way to him all of this time, he keeps pointing to him, and hundreds begin to follow him, and then comes his baptism, and that's the thing that happens in chapter 3, right before chapter 4, and to the watching world, the unthinkable is beginning to happen, right? He is actually here. The Messiah is here, right? Jews in their hundreds are flocking to be baptized for all the world watching on. Something is happening here. Jesus is here. And then temptation. See, all the world watching on, something is happening. Something incredible is going on. And then the very next thing we find, temptation, trial, alone after 40 days of fasting. Why? Why? You see, this is the season of Lent. This is the season where we give ourselves again to waiting, anticipating, confessing, contending. This is the season where we, we set space aside for those kind of four things and lots more, where we wait, where we anticipate again, where we confess, where we contend for God in our lives. That's what this is all about. And this passage, this season, the atmosphere of this time of year, right? It's not about coming to some place of just giving stuff up and putting some stuff on. That's not what this is for, right? Lent is not just, you know, the yearly thing where we say, well, I'm giving this up for 40 days and then you binge the life out of it afterwards, right? That's not what it's for. That's not what we do in Lent. It's a season to remember, reflect, and prepare. And this passage today, right, as we kick off this season, right, we restore to ourselves a sense of two things. We restore to ourselves a sense of who he is and who we are. This whole season is about restoring to yourself a sense of who he is and who we are. That's what it's for. And that's what we're here to do. That's what we're here to start today. It starts with recovering a sense of who he is. 
Let's just read about those temptations again, this time from the message. And you can kind of pause, close your eyes as I read these two. They're not going to appear behind me deliberately so. Let's just listen to these words as Eugene Peterson translates them. Next, Jesus was taken into the wild by the Spirit for the test. The devil was ready to give it to him. Jesus prepared for the test by fasting 40 days and 40 nights. That left him, of course, in a state of extreme hunger, which the devil took advantage of in the first test when he said, since you're God's son, speak the word that will turn these stones into loaves of bread. Jesus answered by quoting Deuteronomy, it takes more than bread to stay alive. It takes a steady stream of words from God's mouth. And for the second test, the devil took him to the holy city He sat him on top of the temple and he said, since you're God's son, jump. The devil goaded him by quoting Psalm 91. He has placed you in the care of angels. They will catch you so that you won't so much as stub your toe on a stone. Jesus countered with another citation from Deuteronomy. Don't you dare test the Lord, your God. For the third test, the devil took him to the peak of a huge mountain. He gestured expansively, pointing out all the earth's kingdoms, how glorious they all were. Then he said, they're yours. Look. Stock and barrel, just go down on your knees and worship me, and they're yours. Jesus' refusal was curt. Beat it, Satan. He backed his rebuke with a third quotation from Deuteronomy. Worship the Lord your God and only him. Serve him with absolute single-heartedness. Those are the temptations. But what's the significance of them, right? We want to get to the heart of this. What are they all about, okay? Well, first off, the devil is rough right? I can think of lots of other words, but I'm not going to say them from the pulpit, especially while we're being recorded. I can think of lots of other words for the devil, but he is rough, right? He's not kind. He's not nice. He's the antithesis of all the things that God is. And this is one of these moments where you see him for what he is, right? So much of the time, it's the tactic to go after us when we're low. If you're tired today, if you're having a rough time at work, if your marriage is just hard going at the minute, that's where you'll be. If you're in one of those seasons, that's where he will be. Undermining, whispering, lying, telling you things would be better and easier if you walked away. Because that's what he does. When you're low, that's where he'll be. Right in the middle of it, whispering away. And that's where he is with Jesus, right? 40 days, 40 days into a fast, hungry and exhausted. He's right there. And so the temptations, and there are three of them, they start with food. Lots of you are like, I can relate, right? It starts with food, okay? And that's kind of obvious. That's the one we kind of get. And we're like, yeah, well, I understand, right? Food starts there. The next then is to reveal himself. In other words, to show off, to make a show of strength. And the thing is that this, this one is so far, you know, where God's people are concerned. The temple is the center of the whole world, right? To them, the, the holy temple, the holy place, right? It's the center of all of the world for them. And so he's saying, basically, jump off the highest point of the center of the world. In other words, show off to the whole world who you are. The devil's trying to tempt them into making a scene for all the world to see. And finally, it's power. And in particular, it's a shortcut to it. In many ways, he's saying, I'll give you all the power if you give me the glory. You can have it now. Don't worry about the rest of the plan. You can have it now. Just bow down. Just kneel. Just compromise. 
And so the temptations are pretty straightforward, right? It's quite easy to understand what he's getting at. But in many ways, it's Jesus' responses that are actually the interesting bit. You see, Jesus responds by quoting the Bible back at the devil, which is not entirely surprising given the devil is quoting the Bible at him, right? That's kind of where they're going. He's quoting scripture, he's quoting it back, right? That's what they're doing with each other. And the message translation tells you that those quotes come straight from Deuteronomy 8, okay? And that's true. But actually... The responses are significant because they're responses given to trials for the people of God that were exactly the same. What am I talking about? Well, the first one is a kind of direct parallel to Exodus 16. We're starving, grumbling. The people of God want to turn back. What does God do? He sends manna, right? The temptation is to say, God, we are starving here. There's no food. You've left us. What does God do? He sends manna, right? That's Exodus 16. And then in Exodus 17, they're desperate for water when they don't see any around and they don't trust God for it, even though their food is miraculous, right? That's kind of a wonder, right? They're getting fed by food that God is, you know, is not human in any way. It's being sent miraculously from heaven. They're eating food and yet they're going, God, there's no water. Like, and they don't trust him for the provision for the food. And they test Moses, and then they test God. And so that line, do not put the Lord your God to the test, you'll find that in Exodus 17. And then in Exodus 32, the people of God see that it was taking Moses too long to come down from the mountain. The plan was too long. They couldn't wait. And they wanted a shortcut. And so they make a golden calf, and they choose to worship it instead. Why am I saying this? I'm saying this because the temptations were the same. And Jesus knew what he was doing when he quoted Deuteronomy back because this is one of the moments where even in temptation and trial, Jesus shows us who he really is. The whole point of these is that you get to see who he really is, right? That's what's going on in the temptations. The devil's saying shortcut and Jesus is proving who he really is. You see, where Israel had failed Jesus wouldn't. If you know the story of kind of the Bible, the story of the people of God, then the first person who was meant to be able to live as God intended was Adam, and Adam couldn't do it. He mucked it up. And then Israel, right? God's people, they were meant to be a blessing to the whole earth. But then if you know the Old Testament kind of series of events of Israel, well, they weren't great at it either. They mucked it up. And, and this is saying that Jesus is, is going to complete things. He's going to follow through. He won't shortcut where Israel failed. These weren't some sort of generic temptations, right? They weren't that. They were bespoke to who he was and what he was meant for. They were the temptations a Messiah would suffer. Adam had failed. Israel had failed. Jesus wouldn't. That's what it's saying. You see, Jesus was recapitulating all of history, all of humanity, where all the pieces had been broken. Jesus was making it all back together. All things new that we've talked about a number of times. That's what this is about. He's saying where Israel failed, I won't. Where we got broken, I won't. I'll remake this. It's about who he is. Because on Jesus' life, there was huge expectation, right? I mean, if you'd been there and he'd kind of emerged from the desert, everybody knew that was significant. He'd been, John the Baptist is going, this guy, he's the guy, and everybody follows him. And then you go to his baptism and you hear the Lord speak over as you know, the Father speak over him. You're going, well, obviously he's the guy, right? Expectations are going to be way, way, way up here. 
And every person in the world would have had an opinion on what Jesus was going to be and do, right? They all had Messiah expectations. This is the sort of Messiah that he's going to be, right? This is what he's going to do. This is how he's going to save us. This is how he's going to change the world. Expectations were sky high. Everyone had an idea and an image of what a Messiah should be. And in so many ways, the temptations before him would have let him fulfill them. They would have made it easier, right? I mean, if he just does what the devil says, he gets the whole world. Easy, right? I mean, the whole world would have seen him for who he is. He would have had all the power over everything if he just gives in. The point is this, right in this moment, Jesus is having to make a choice between being a Messiah who's a slave to popular opinion or a Messiah who chooses the way of the cross. Is he either going to be the Messiah that everybody tells him he should be or is he going to be the Messiah that chooses the way of the cross? N.T. Wright says this, when Jesus refused to go the way of the tempter, he was embracing the way of the cross. Right here, right at the start of his ministry, right after he's been lifted sky high by the Father, he's choosing to embrace the way of the cross by pushing back at the trials that are in his life. This was who he is. And the thing is that that's exactly what the devil goes after, isn't it? So at his baptism, the father speaks over him. In Matthew 3, 17, it says this, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased, right? As far as affirmations go, that's pretty high, isn't it, right? The father, God, the spirit appearing above you and saying, I'm pretty proud of this guy, right? If that's you, you're feeling pretty good about life right now, right? So Jesus is being lifted up, right? And then the very next chapter in, in Matthew 4, then this is what the devil says right at the start of the temptation, if you are the son of God. And he says it three times. The father has just said, this is my son whom I love, who I am well pleased with. And what does the devil go after? If you are the son of God. See, the Father lifted him up, but affirmation was followed by trial. Affirmation gets followed by trial. About four years ago now, um, I was on staff at Carmoney, um, and it was a Sunday night. We just finished up a large conference that had happened in the church. We'd had an amazing time, um, uh, and we were already kind of forming team around us to plant this church, right? It was already the kind of dream that was on our hearts to do this, and um, so, you know, you're, before you plant a church, you're like all excited about it, right? You're like, this is going to be incredible, blah, blah, blah. And you don't actually get into the nitty gritty of, you know, summers in the early years where you just think, I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. Anyway, so we're in the early stages. We're excited. We're, you know, lots of expectation, all of that about Central. And um, we believe God was calling us. And throughout the conference, there'd been a number of people that had given us prophetic words and spoken stuff over us. Uh, and these were like, these were no small things that people had spoken over our lives and, and that God was calling, particularly the number of people that prayed over me and that God was, was calling me to plant the church, all of that sort of stuff, right? And I never done this before. It's not like I've, you know, I was landed and this is the sixth church I've planted. I have no idea what I'm doing. If that, if you, you know, if that hasn't, if you don't know that now, I've just told you, right? No idea, right? And in my heart of hearts, terrified really about the prospect of changing the things that I knew and the stuff that I was comfortable with and I thought I was quite good at for something that I'm like, I have no idea how to do this. So I'm, I'm terrified. And so these are no small things that people are speaking over my life. These are no insignificant things. And at the same time, in the background, right, Carmoney was running elders' elections at church, and, and I was the only staff member on the list on this particular kind of um, run of elders' elections. And it felt like it was, you know, it was pretty obvious that I was going to get elected for this, okay? 
Um, after all, I'd been pretty active in lots of the things that the church had been doing for 10 years. These were all things that were at the front. So, you know, people see you. That makes it easier to get elected. All of that, right? I was all in. And in comparison with the stuff that speak, people were speaking over my life, right? The eldership thing felt like a little thing, right? It felt like easy, right? You know, someone's saying you're going to plant the church and change Belfast. And there's this little election running in the background. You're thinking that'll be no problem. So in my heart of hearts, I wasn't really even thinking about it. I just thought, well, this will be fine. And then Sunday night comes and we're like sky high. God's been doing and speaking all this stuff over our lives. We're sitting around in the house and I get the call. And it's like, they didn't vote for you. You didn't get enough votes. You're not elected. And to make matters worse, two of the people who were contributing to the conference, some of the people that had sp- spoken some of those prophetic words, were staying with us. They were in the room when I got the call, right? And I just felt gutted, right? I just felt like it totally took the feet out from under me. The question in my heart was, if my own congregation don't see leadership on my life, how the heck am I going to plant and lead a church? And I went from affirmation way up here to temptation, trial, challenge way down here in the space of about 15 minutes on a Sunday night. See, right after the affirmation came the trial. And I've found so often in my own life and in the life of other people that the devil seems to go after your life when you're low, when you're tired, when you're kind of at the end of yourself, the devil will seem to start to say, don't bother, don't get out of bed today, don't try, give up. It'll be better if you're not there. It's easier. But also the devil will go after you whenever you're high. The number of people that we were on Alpha Weekends with or led to faith in Jesus, and it's like the very next day, it didn't really happen. Your life isn't really transformed. You're still not good enough. Don't get bored with these people. They're weird. Blah, blah, blah. When you're low and when you're high, affirmation will nearly always be followed by trial. Because it's in those spaces that he'll do anything he can to distract you from your purpose in life. And it matters that you stay the course. It's in the moments where you feel affirmed to be who you are that the devil will say, you're not that person. Don't get ideas above your station. Just knock yourself down about three levels. That's not who you are. Forget it. It matters that you stay the course. It matters that you don't shortcut it. It matters to us because we're sitting here today, right? That I didn't go, you know what? You're right. I shouldn't do this. Don't bother. It matters. And it mattered even more for Jesus because his purpose was this, Matthew 4, 16. Just right after the temptations, this is what will be affirmed. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. That's where his life led. The way of the cross was the way of our living. There was no shortcuts for Jesus. Lent is about recovering the memory, the reality of the one that we come to. He never backed down. He went through with the cross, even though there was an easier, simpler way. Remember, encounter him again this season. That's what Lent is all about. It's an opportunity to come back to who he is. But secondly, Lent is about who we are. Lent is about who he is, but it's also about who we are. The American critic and columnist in The New Yorker, uh, Alexander Wilcott, once wrote this. If it seems as if everything I like is either illegal, immoral, or fattening. You're like, amen to that. Uh, all three of them at the same time, preferably. Anyway, it's true, right? It's incredible that uh, for all of humankind, there is a familiarity to what tempts us, isn't it? To where the trial is. In many ways, there are seven billion of us, and we're all pretty much tempted by the same things, right? Right? 
uh, McChicken Nuggets. Anyway, we're all tempted by the same stuff. As Henri Nouwen comments all those years ago, right, the trials before Jesus were really just the same as they are before many of us in our heart of hearts. They were about relevance, popularity, and power. Relevance, popularity, and power. And those are the ones that are before us all today too, aren't they? Relevance, popularity, and power. If we're really honest with ourselves, that's where the temptation lies a lot of the time. One of the things that we know that Jesus was fully human is that he was tempted to the same things that we are. It's not as if, you know, he didn't understand the things that are coming at us in life. He got it because he went through them too. And trials speak to who we are. How? Because trials are how we grow. The reality is trials are how we grow. Trials are where we sort out and filter the emotional highs of following Jesus from God's conquest on our lives. It's an incredible mechanism for sorting through just the highs and the high points, filtering through down to who you really are. You know, we're not meant to live on spiritual highs, right? We're not meant to be someone that just goes from like peak trough, peak trough, peak trough. Every time I'm low, I just need another peak. I just need to go to another Christian conference. I just need another prophetic word, right? That's not how the Christian life is meant to work. Trials build spiritual muscle. They aren't nice, but neither are hill sprints in preseason training. They may cause us to ask ourselves, what is the point anyway? They will almost certainly hurt. They will definitely wreck us. And that's the mystery of the way of Jesus, right? That there's no life without death. That there's no growth without trial. You will not grow if you don't come through trials in your life. And for so much of our lives, we are drawn to and just led by consuming, aren't we? It's kind of the pattern of this world. But in our Christian lives, we kind of default into the same things, don't we? It's why spiritual highs are so compelling and so addictive. We consume them and then we just search from the next one, don't we? That's why you get these people that like hop from conference to conference that never actually belong to a church. They just go to like six different ones, whichever will give them that thing that they're looking for at one time. So lift them up, peak, great, now I'm high. Oh, I feel wick about my spiritual walk again. Go to another church, yes, I'm up here again. Love you, Jesus, then falling off the, the cliff again. And then another conference, yes, and that's how some people work. That's not how the Christian life works. Trials, however, are not about consuming, they're about contending. Trials are about contending. A contending for your heart, a contending for your attention, a contending for your everything. They are the pounding that is within. They're the pounding that happens within. I know so often they feel like something external, right? Trials feel like you know, God or, or some circumstances putting the brakes on that thing I think I need or I want, right? It feels external. Don't have enough money, food, relationship, whatever it is, you're like, it feels like it's outside, doesn't it? But the reality of a trial is what it's forming on the inside. It's a contending. As Eugene Peterson says, trials are how we find the organizing center of our lives. Trials are how we whittle through the highs and the lows, the stuff that is kind of, that grabs our attention, but actually isn't what we really need. Trials are how we filter through to find the organizing center of our lives. You see, the temptation was for Jesus to establish the kingdom without the way of the cross. And it's exactly the same for us. The temptation is to try to establish the kingdom without the way of the cross, to long for the kingdom to come. How many times have you prayed those words when you've said the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come? And you've longed for it to come in the world and in our lives just so long as it hasn't meant the cross for your life. 
The way of the kingdom means the way of the cross. The trouble is, as soon as it feels like a trial, you're like, I'm out too hard. But that's what contending is, isn't it? See, the temptation was on Jesus' life to do a deal, to compromise, to shortcut with the devil. And that's the same one for us. Just to compromise, just, just a little bit. Just compromise what I believe. Just compromise how I live. Just compromise what I expect. Just to compromise a little. We must never do that. I need to tell you today again that you are anything but average. That your purpose in this life is important. And that you must never compromise on the way of the cross. The way of trial for the sake of the kingdom. It's who we are. Lent is about who he is, but it's also about who we are. Hebrews 12 tells it like this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders us and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. That's the trial, right? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. That's why this season starts by remembering who he is. Because you'll consider him, you'll remember, you will encounter him again and it will help you to not grow weary and lose heart in the trials that are forming who you are too. We mentioned earlier in Exodus 17, and here's the thing about that passage, right, or that part in the scripture, that these were people who had been set free from slavery in Egypt. And that's an incredible thing in and of itself, right? They've, they've got away. They've got out of, of a lifetime of slavery, miraculously led by an incredible leader. And then when the trials come along the way on the journey, Exodus 17 tells us that they just want to go back to the slavery that they knew. They just got out of slavery from a tyrant empire. And they're like, this is too hard. The old way felt better than this way. And in so many ways, that's exactly the same with us, isn't it? When the trials come, we're like, take me back. I don't need to do this anymore. I just want to go back. Because when they come in our lives and work and relationships and health and finances and life choices and struggles, sometimes the shortcut seems easier, doesn't it? Sometimes the compromise feels easier. And it's important that you remember in the middle of it all because no doubt the next question that comes when you're in a position of trial is, where are you, God? Like, where the heck are you? It's important that you remember that he has not abandoned you. In the hunger of your life, whatever that is, whatever your trial, he hasn't left you. You're not on your own. You're not walking any road that he has not walked and that he does not walk with you. And the question today is, will you trust him in the trial? Do you trust him in the trial? Do you trust him to form in you the sort of character that in choosing the way of the cross chooses the kingdom? Do you trust him for provision, presence, and purpose? Because that's what we're really talking about, isn't it? Do you trust him for provision, for his presence, and for purpose? And the incredible thing about those stories from uh, the people of God in Exodus is that that is literally what they got, right? You know, they got food from heaven. The other amazing thing for me is that the line about their clothes, they wore the same clothes for 40 years and their clothes didn't wear out. That's what the Bible says, right? That's pretty incredible, right? I mean, I have a Merino base layer that I have worn for about like, I don't know, 
I don't really want to admit it. Many, many days. There's actually a dude that wore one around the world. He literally sailed around the world in the same item of clothing for something like 300 days. Apparently it didn't smell. Anyway, I've worn mine for like 20 days, right? And that's incredible. The people of God wore the same clothes for 40 years and they never wore out. They had to trust God for their provision. Similarly, they had to trust him for his presence because it was his presence that continued to lead them and guide them through the way that they were traveling. And they had to trust him for his purpose. The point is, do you trust him today for provision, for presence, and for purpose? With whatever you're walking through. These are the words of Henri Nguyen. I cannot continuously say no to this or no to that unless there is something 10 times more attractive to choose. Saying no to my lust, my greed, my needs, and the world's powers takes an enormous amount of energy. The only hope is to find something so obviously real and attractive that I can devote all my energies to saying yes. One such thing I can say yes to is when I come in touch with the fact that I am loved. Once I have found that in my total brokenness, I am still loved, I have become free from the compulsion of doing successful things. We come to talk about temptations today, right at the start of the Lent story. And the point is, it's not just, it's not, it's not simply just an act of saying no to things. That's not what this is. That's not what Jesus did. And that's not the expectation in our lives. It's that there would be a greater yes on your lives than all of the no's. We have to fall in love all over again. We have to fall in love again. Because only love, only something that has our attention will see us through the trials. And they, if they're not already on your life, if you haven't already known them, they will come in your life. You will know trials. You will know disappointments and struggles and challenges and stuff that will come in in your walk with Jesus. And only a relationship with Jesus, only falling in love with him again and again and again will see you through the trials that are to come. Lent is about recovering who he is. I don't know what you think about that. I don't know if it's a season where you're just like going through the motions. Christian life has become a little bit monotonous. You know, you're not walking away, but it's not like you're in a season where you're like, Jesus, I am meeting with you on the day and daily basis. Your word is speaking to me. I'm excited about what you're doing in my life. You're just a little bit distant, right? Your faith has become a little bit weary, a little bit mechanical, a little bit worn down. This is the season where you find him again. This one, you find who he truly is, beautiful, present provider, the one who understands because he went through it and took no shortcuts in his pursuit of his purpose, in his pursuit of us. And this is also the season where you dig in and uncover who we are. We take stock of the trials that have been in your life. We take stock of your stuff. I'm weak here. I'm struggling with this. I'm distant here. We know that trials are where we grow and we find our organizing center, where trials are where we find that we choose the way of the cross for our lives for the sake of the kingdom. 